HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Carp Resources, carpresources.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, if you do in fact like it, and reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today is episode number 67 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm pleased to be joined by phone. Uh, I have Liz Williams, the president of the Food and Beverage Foundation, uh, calling in from New Orleans. And let me start by saying that I'm a little overwhelmed by how many different things Liz and the Food and Beverage Foundation do and uh, how to fit that into this little show. We'll see how we can, how we can fit it in. Uh, the foundation's <laughs> mission is documenting and celebrating the food and drink of all cultures, and that's a pretty big endeavor. Uh, and if that's not enough, they also run the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, the Museum of the American Cocktail, the Pacific Food and Beverage Museum, and the John and Bonnie Boyd Hospitality and Culinary Library. It's a lot. So, Liz, thank you for taking the time out of your obviously busy schedule to talk to me today. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we'll be able to cover kind of everything that you do, but I hope that we'll get to a lot of it. Um, you know, clearly you have a lot on your plate and in your glass, both literally and figuratively. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you describe when someone, you know, when you meet someone, uh, how do you describe what you do and what the Food and Beverage Foundation is and does? Well, I tell them that I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to eat and drink for a living all day, all the time. <laughs> so, sounds great. Um, I, I aspire to that. Yes. And um, I just really, I tell them that we are a group of people who are just really interested in sharing and documenting food for everyone because so often... It's the thing that is forgotten. Obviously, everyone eats and drinks, but 
the the documentation of it is something that is often forgotten, and so that's something that we think is really important that we do. That's great. I mean, I you know, I, I spend a lot of time and I've spent a lot of time in my life surrounded by antiques. I worked in an antique store as a teenager. My father is a collector of many, many things. And so I feel like I sort of grew up around preservation of history um, in a way that mm-hmm. I find a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, I've spent lots of time in my life at estate sales and flea markets. And the number of times that I've come across someone's family recipe book and I think, oh, you know, how like how interesting it is for me to get a chance to look at it, but also kind of how sad it is that whoever's ancestors took the time to write that down and put it together, they don't have it anymore. That's, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know, when you are um, a, a person going to different museums, especially when you're a, um, a kid and you're in school, they take you to natural history museums and you get to see the archaeological remains of people and their search for food, especially like that took up their whole day. Yep. So you see little little fish hooks and you see primitive vessels and all of that sort of thing. And then after there was agriculture and writing, you totally don't see anything about food anymore for a thousand years because it's almost as though people stopped eating. Hmm. And we sort of know that didn't happen, but um, people stopped collecting the everyday things that people used to eat their food in and all that. So if it wasn't beautiful, suddenly the aesthetics became important as opposed to the documentation. And so what we do have is the rarefied food, the rarefied vessels and things that only the rich and wealthy had because they were beautifully decorated and the things that the everyday people had we really don't have any documents of that sure and and i also think about um you know hearing you talk about that i mean that's a really fascinating point that we went from these artifacts and the things that you know we find from prehistory being related to cooking and eating and and potentially farming um, before there was recorded art and before there was literature and then suddenly you're right the focus really shifts um, as you move sort of as you move further into into the future um, I, it does make me think though I recently took my kids to see um, we, we spent a lot of time at the Brooklyn Museum and they have a great Egyptian collection and we were talking about the mm-hmm. mummies and the things that were sort of packed into the pyramids and into the tombs with the mummies and often there was food in that and so I did have a slight discussion about that so you know but in other cultures sort of after that that wasn't part of their death ritual no but even even the things that were found with the mummies were only the people who were wealthy enough to be entombed with all of that sure sure um so then you know so you guys now currently operate um I guess it's three museums and a library, but it's two physical locations, right? The the Cocktail uh, Museum and the Southern Museum are both in the same building. Is that correct? Yes, yes they're in the same building. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And, and the, we're hoping that this year, 2017, we'll be opening a physical location in Los Angeles. So that will be a, a second physical location. And that uh, that location, the, the location in... New Orleans is focused on southern food and the sort of... Mm, that's, that's right. It's a regional museum, and then the one that would open in Los Angeles would be Pacific Food and Beverage Museum, also regional. Mm. And that covers the, the entire Pacific coast of the U.S.? 
The, the Pacific Coast, yes. Got mm-hmm. it. Um, and so moving, moving even further into the future, does the, does the foundation have plans for other regional food museums? Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> and uh, we're planning on something in the Midwest, um, especially to be able to talk about things like how commodity exchange developed and um, railroads and what that did for the Midwest. And um, we want to do something in the Northeast. I mean, we, we definitely have a, a lot of a lot of big plans. It just takes a while for it to all unfold. Sure. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's important work. I mean, coming you know, coming out of the the sort of growing up in in almost in a museum and always having an interest in history um you know when i became interested in food of course that's right where i went i started collecting antique cast iron pans and antique tools and old recipe books and you know back into the 19th century um and and always sort of looked at those things and only recently have i felt like you know as cooking has gotten more popularized in the last in in sort of pop culture in the last 10 15 20 years um do you start to see things like this crop up in museums and it is really important i think there has to be someone who is curating and telling those stories and you know we see a lot of that stuff on the internet which is fine but so much of this is physical and of course with food and beverage you need to drink it and eat it right Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, I do believe that it is now become something that most museums are recognizing as a cultural uh, phenomenon that they had been overlooking previously. So I'm really heartened by that, not only because people are beginning to display things that are related to food and cooking and growing food, capturing food, whatever it might be, fishing, etc., but also becoming more aware of um, what kinds of foods they're serving in the, the little cafe that might be associated with their museum or anything like that, so that they use that as another way to curate what the experience of the museum goer is. Absolutely. Have, have you been uh, recently to the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian? I haven't been to that one. I recently went, actually about three weeks ago, to the new African-American History Museum uh, on the Smithsonian. I haven't visited and there yet, the, but... That one has um, has really made a, a very marked decision to have their cafeteria absolutely reflect the food influence of... Uh, enslaved Africans and then African Americans on the food of America. It's really amazing. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up actually about the other museum is the same thing is true. They have the food in the cafeteria split sort of regionally into foods that are related to or come from those Native American cultures in different parts of the country. Um, And I found that to be very interesting, much different than, say, my memories as a child of going to the Museum of Natural History where you get, you know, chicken fingers and french fries. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to making another pilgrimage to Washington and going to the the Native American Museum. Yes. And uh, so I wanted to wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal history with food. So you grew up in New Orleans, and you're still based there, um, a city that's obviously has a lot of renown for both its food and its cocktail uh, world. But how did you come to be the president of the foundation? Well, I was one of those people that never exactly knew what I wanted to do. 
Um, I went to law school right out of college, basically because I thought, well, what else does a person do when they don't know what to do but go to law school? <laughs> and um, I, you know, I traveled around, but my my biggest interest always was that intersection of food and drink and culture. Not necessarily cooking and not even always eating, but just the, the cultural aspect of food and drink. I was just fascinated by it. And um, finally, after some experience with museums, and um, uh, I, I just said we need to have a food museum in New Orleans. There can't be a better place to get started with something like this. And so I, I created originally just the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. And now during the time that it's existed, we've expanded to become the National Food and Beverage Foundation. That's great. And uh, you wrote a book that came out last year called Lift Your Spirits, A Celebratory History of Cocktail Culture in New Orleans. That's right. I wrote it with Chris McMillan, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, did that did that book come out of your personal experience of growing up and learning learning about drinking in New Orleans? Yes. I mean, it, it certainly does reflect my own personal experience growing up drinking in New Orleans. Um, but it wound up being sort of the leftover stuff from my other book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. The editor said, no, this is another book. It's going to be too big. And so... What it did was it took all of the cocktail and, and spirits and, and alcoholic stuff out of my other book and uh, wound up letting me expand some of that into Lift Your Spirits. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, about New Orleans as a city. Um, I visited there a couple of times long, long ago before Katrina happened. Um, but I was curious to know, you know, a lot of people who uh, grow up in a city and either leave and then return or spend their whole lives in a city, I feel like, at least in New York, we have this this sort of cultural thing of always uh, pining for the past and saying, oh, it used to be so great and this thing used to be there and th- that used to be there. Um, as a city, you know, New Orleans seems to have had quite a rebirth, um, you know, both you know since the since the hurricane and i'm wondering as someone who grew up there what you think about that are there are there pieces of the city that you miss do you think it's a much greater city than it used to be what are your thoughts on it well i don't think we have the luxury of pining for the past because Mm. if we did that we would just be stuck right i think we have to really look forward um and you know new orleans has been destroyed before um, the French Quarter burned down and comp- you know in, in the early days and had to be rebuilt in the late 18th century and so we've had this history of starting over starting over and uh, and I, I think that as much as we love the past and there certainly are people who have that backwards looking oh remember this you know this was lost and that was lost um, I think most people actually, carry the culture with them and they just keep going hmm. and i love that about the city because it means that every time we have something new happen whether it's a new wave of immigration or uh, something extraordinary that goes on we just incorporate it into what we already have and there's really not a resistance to that and that's the thing i really like about the city we are I think we actually have a really active and alive culture, so it stays alive because 
we keep moving forward and we keep incorporating what's happening into the future. Right, right. Well, I look forward to getting back, and I certainly, I certainly look forward to visiting uh, visiting the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and the Cocktail Museum. Um, two things that I that I really love: food and beverage. Uh, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what the future means to a museum of food. CARP Resources is proud to be a member of the business community that supports Heritage Radio Network. CARP Resources solves food problems. Our mantra is, good food is good business, and it's our mission to help you connect the two. From designing regional sourcing strategies and sustainability plans to developing cutting-edge food curricula, we customize your approach to changing the food environment in your communities, marketplaces, or within your own organizations. Our diverse team of thinkers and practitioners apply honed methodologies and tactical experience to each challenge and opportunity. Our unparalleled cross-sector network expands your own, whether you are a philanthropic organization, a community college, a global food distributor, or a children's museum. To learn more, please visit carpresources.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I have Liz Williams on the phone from New Orleans. Liz is the president of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. And before the break, uh, we were talking about New Orleans and uh, the location of the museum. But Liz, you mentioned, you brought up immigrants, um, and I wanted to, to sort of talk about that as a, as a topic, obviously. Immigrants, immigration is very sort of a hot-button issue uh, at the moment. Um, but I think that, you know, those of us in the food industry, one way or another, are kind of always talking about immigrants, always thinking about immigrants. I remember before, you know, immigration was a word that appeared in headlines, you know, on the weekends, I would seek out interesting food from other places. We didn't think of it as going looking for immigrant food, but, you know, we'd look for an Albanian restaurant or a Georgian restaurant or an African restaurant in the sort of far reaches of New York and Queens. Um, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, New Orleans seems to be a place and, and Southern food certainly where those influences, I think, are really strong and are really ingrained in American food. Um, I think I think you're right. I think one of the differences between New York and New Orleans is that in New York, you can still find um, restaurants that are run by um, people who either grew up or one generation away from growing up somewhere else. Um, in New Orleans, we, we still have a few restaurants like that, but not the kind of array that New York has. Hmm. But we tend to creolize, that's our word. Sure. Um, we tend to creolize um, the food of immigrants, and there's so so many things that have influenced the food of New Orleans as well as the whole South, and we stop thinking about them as anything but our own. Right. And it just becomes our food, and it's no longer, oh, let's have a banh mi. We call it a Vietnamese po' boy. Uh. And, uh, you know, we just we just make it our own. Sure. And, um, and that's, um, I think that's something special about New Orleans. Can you give me an example of, uh, of I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you to choose a favorite, but um, one, of your, <laughs> one of your favorite dishes that you feel is really, um, you know, representative of that in New Orleans? Um, 
Well, the thing that, you know, besides things like gumbo, which go back really far into our our history, well, one of the things that I really love is um, the meatball po'boy made with red gravy. Hmm. And um, so we make a, a red, something we call red gravy, which is the Creole version of a tomato sauce, right. a, a Sicilian tomato sauce. And, of course, we put it on our po'boy, including, you know, the pickles and the sliced tomato and the shredded lettuce and all that, mayonnaise, all that. Then you put red gravy on it, and then you put big meatballs. Oh, wow. And, so uh, differing I, I from, really a, like that. <laughs> from a New York meatball sub where you really just have this the meatballs and sauce and, and gravy with cheese melted on it on the bread. You guys cover the, the lettuce and all the fresh vegetables with the gravy. I like that. Uh, oh, yeah. Because it's not a po' boy without all that stuff on Got it. Yeah. <laughs> defining, <laughs> defining characteristic. It's funny, you know, the, the list of questions, I don't, none of my listeners, I don't think, know the list, but the list of questions I sent you in advance of the show, I send to everybody because I feel like it helps to define the interview a little bit if I know a little bit about people. And I ask people, what do you call a sandwich that's longer than it is wide? And you're the first person I've had and I've interviewed who said it's called a po' boy. So that's clearly, <laughs> clearly you're the only person that I've interviewed from New Orleans, I think. So far, so far. Um, so, you know, as as far as um, as immigrants go, I mean, I, I sort of feel like we now are in a in a place and, and talking about food and talking about the museum. I, I, I want to talk about what the future looks like. And so, you know, it's very interesting to think about what might these next things be. I think that we also talk, you know, we we get into these discussions about food where we think of things in sort of a canonical way where, you know, things are sort of, they need to be the same and grandma made, you know, this dough this particular way and we want to continue that through and there's a lot of value in that. I don't feel like we spend a lot of time talking about what is the next influence that's going to come in and create something new that we're going to look back on in 50 or 60 or 70 years and then we'll, we'll consider it part of the canon. I don't know if you have any, uh, any insight into that or anything you think that we may start to see based on immigration that will become part of our vernacular? Well, I I think that in order for that phenomenon to happen, there has to be a sort of concentrated uh, number of of immigrants that are coming from a particular area. Um, And so sometimes that makes it difficult to to predict. But... um, um, You know, I know in New Orleans, for example, in the post-Katrina world, we had this huge influx of people from Mexico who came as a part of the labor force to rebuild the city. And the city was very vulnerable in those days. People um, weren't opening restaurants every day and that sort of thing because um, their own houses were flooded. The restaurant was flooded. They were trying to put back the pieces so we had taco trucks everywhere that were that were just um, popping up. But the thing that was so interesting to me about it is that you'd find it, it was a fried oyster taco, right. or it was uh, uh, a soft shell crab taco, or something that still was very reflective of New Orleans. Um, and yet, we wouldn't be eating tacos if it hadn't been for all of the people from Mexico and then a little bit later other parts of Central America um, coming into the city. So now this is established. People eat oyster tacos regularly. And um, 
and nobody thinks of them as having a Mexican influence. It's just, oh, we, this is something we eat here. Right. And uh, so now what, what the next uh, wave of immigration might be, I think we might be speculating for a while yeah, before right. we know that. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, I certainly, I, you know, I, I feel like even in the in the sort of um, more popular food media, Mediterranean food is kind of having a is having a moment. Um, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if some of those things won't find their way um, into sort of our our sort of normalized cooking um, in that way. And, and the way that those things happen, I think, too, is very interesting. Um, you know, looking at my own personal family and, you know, coming from a mostly Eastern European, you know, immigration two generations ago and looking at sort of the things that filtered down. But then like in my own immediate family, my mother used to make asabuco as a, you know, as like for family celebrations. Now that's not something that came uh-huh. out of our, you know, Russian, Hungarian, German background, but it became family important to us as a food object. So I guess we'll see how those things kind of connect. Well, I, and I really think that sometimes is, is really the most wonderful, the things that happen in your family that you carry on and that you remember as the food of celebration and that kind of thing. And then every time you eat it, even if it's not at a celebration, it reminds you of your family and, and the way you eat it around the table with your family. So bringing up family, um, one of my other questions I ask my guests is, who would you like to have dinner with? Um, you know, if it could be anyone, and you said um, you're the first person ever to look into the future of that. Also, in answering that question, and you said you would like to have dinner with your great great grandchildren. So, by my math, that puts us somewhere in you know in a time machine to about 2075 or so. I'm guessing. Uh, and so, I, I would think. Yeah. And so, I'm wondering what you think that dinner, what you think that dinner might be like, um, and what you would want to sort of serve your great great grandchildren, um, and what you think they might think of the food of of now. Well, I suppose that if I were to serve them, I would make some kind of gumbo um, and uh, uh, and just say, this is the way we used to eat gumbo, and, uh, and see if they were making gumbo in the same way, whether they were eating the same things, whether they're eating bugs or um, whether they're um, eating, uh, you know, farm-raised seafood, um, whether they're eating seaweed on a regular basis. I don't know. I, I think it's going to be different. I, I think it'll be hard for us to think about. Yeah, I mean, definitely we're, we're headed into sort of some, I think, some difficult times as far as uh, raising livestock and, and farming and available arable land and water use and that kind of thing in the next generation or, or two. So. And we also don't know whether the population is going to explode and yep. so we'll be having to look at other kinds of, of food sources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the programming at the at the museum. Um, you know, I noticed I see you guys have something coming up. I believe it's this weekend with Pierre Tom, who's a, a chef who we know, um, who's Senegalese, uh, who's done some events here with us with us in Brooklyn. Um, how do you uh, how do you program your events at the museum? Um, I see you guys have some some pop up uh, stuff as well. So can you talk a little bit about your events? Well, we try to have something every weekend so that um, locals have a reason to come back to the museum. During the week, we often have tourists who are in town, and they are interested in coming to the museum, and they're just going to come, and they're not going to come the next day or the next day because they'll be gone. 
but we definitely want to have our locals have a reason to keep coming back and to feel like the city, that the, the museum is the center of things that they're interested in doing. So, um, and we also try to bring people in um, so that they have a really interesting um, experience when, when they come, things that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I mean, occasionally we'll have a local chef who'll do a demonstration or something like that. But, you know, you can go to that local chef restaurant. So coming to the museum to see that chef might not be as exciting as bringing somebody in from somewhere else. So we try to have a combination of experiences that you wouldn't have, like learning if you're a hunter how to break down a deer mm. or something like that, um, to... Um, uh, learning about you know coastal erosion and some of the issues involved there. So we uh, a couple of weeks ago we we had a big program about the the loss of the coastline um, and that erosion that has multiple causes, but that is that is definitely happening. And you know it's like all this land that not only Louisiana but America is losing. Right. And we had. Um, we had we were starting to eat alligator. Um, we were eating alligator just to say that the habitat of the alligator is being eroded. Um, so we we did that, and we try to make it as interesting as we can. Um, and we just kind of brainstorm and say, "Oh, does anybody know how we can get to so and so and invite them to come and that sort of thing?" It's not. Uh, not really rocket science or anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I love the programming. It looks it looks great. Uh, it looks fascinating. So it'd be you know, I look forward to to getting to visit and, and hopefully attend attend at least one of the one of the programs that you guys do. I would hope that you could absolutely. And then we do have our classes. We have a standing class on Monday, which is a taste of New Orleans, and we make uh, jambalaya and bananas foster and. And then eat it, which is always fun. And then on Thursdays, we alternate. One day, we do a Cajun gumbo. And the next Thursday, we do um, Creole Italian, making red gravy. About how many uh, About how many visitors a month do you guys get at the museum? Um, we have about uh, between two and 300 people a day. Great. We're open six days a week, so whatever that math is. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. Well, well over you know between a thousand and two thousand, I would guess, depending on the on the how busy right. it is. How busy yeah. the month is, yeah. Um, uh-huh. I'm I'm wondering if you have a, a favorite object or book uh, in the collection that kind of speaks speaks to you about the the history and sort of the mission of the foundation. Well, one of the most uh, wonderful books that we have, which was a gift to us from a friend uh, of the museum is um, the privately published book by Lena Richard, um, which was later republished by Houghton Mifflin. Um, So Lena Richard was an African-American woman who was very well known for um, her cooking, and she had a live television show in 1949 and the beginning of 1950. Wow on the first television station that was in the city of New Orleans, which was WDSU. And, you you know, it was before kinescopes were invented, so we don't have anything that we could put on YouTube about her or anything like that. But 
in uh, it was called uh, the New Orleans Kitchen, Lena Richards New Orleans Kitchen, and um, she had a book by the same name that she self-published, and she had um, a picture of herself in the front and talked about how important it was for um, for people to know about the food of um, their home city and whatever. Now, if she was watched, obviously, by people who could afford in 1949 and 1950 to, to have, have a, a television right. set. Uh, she was uh, one of the most popular programs that they had. She appeared in the television section of the newspaper, her picture regularly, and then um, her book was picked up. So it's pretty easy to get a copy of the nationally published version of the book, but we also have the one that she published hmm. beforehand. So that's a very nice thing to have. Yeah, that's a that, that's really neat. And uh, we're we're just about out of time, but I feel like we hadn't fully talked about cocktails. So I want to know if you have a favorite a favorite cocktail that to you really uh, you know evokes New Orleans and what the cocktail culture means. Well, it has to be the Sazerac. I mean, this is not open to dispute. It is the official cocktail of New Orleans, and um, it, it covers everything. It's, right now, it's a rye-based cocktail that has herb saint, which is the absinthe substitute that was developed in New Orleans after absinthe was banned. Yep. So it has the flavor of absinthe, but without the wormwood. And the Sazerac is made with that. And also Pecho Bitters, which is the New Orleans Bitters. And so, you know, you're walking around drinking New Orleans when you uh, when you have a Sazerac. Sounds good. I think I'm going to have to have one right after the show if I can. Luckily, here at Roberta's, uh, the studio is in the back of Roberta's restaurant, and there's a bar. So perhaps I will go and uh, go have one right after this. That sounds like a good plan. Well, thank you, Liz, so much uh, for making time today. Um, I want to make sure that... Uh, everybody get they get this right. Um, you can find more information about the National Food and Beverage Foundation at natfab.org, N-A-T-F-A-B.org. And you can follow Liz on Twitter uh, at Liz at S-O-F-A-B and Eat Drink, S-O-F-A-B. And then the museum also has a page on Facebook, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Uh, and we will look forward to the opening of the Pacific Food and Beverage Museum next year. Yes, I'm looking forward to it also. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank Thanks you for having me. And uh, next time I get to New Orleans, I'm sorry I'll miss you in New York next week. I know you'll be here, but uh, next time I'm in New Orleans, which hopefully will be before year's end, I definitely will be in touch. I, I look forward to it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today on Heritage Radio Network. Big thank you to David Tattashore, who engineers this show every week. And... You can find me on Instagram at the Foodballer, and uh, please like the show wherever you listen to it, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, on your phone, or wherever. Thanks very much. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.